Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Two Christian ladies worked in the same office. One always wanted the window open, and the other always wanted the window closed. One said, I feel like I'm going to suffocate in here. And the other said, I'm going to catch my death of cold. And so they constantly bickered over, should the window be open or should the window be closed? Somebody in the office sarcastically suggested, why don't you keep the window closed until one of you dies of suffocation and keep it open until the other one dies of pneumonia and then we could have some peace around here. (laughs) Strife is a very common problem, perhaps too common. And unfortunately, it is even common among Christians. You ever had a strife, conflict? That's almost like asking, are you breathing? It's almost like asking, are you alive? Do you have any relationships at all? They start very young. You don't have to be very old to have a conflict with your siblings or your parents. Uh, What about two? They call it the terrible twos. It starts about then and lasts to at least 120. So the question is, how can you prevent or avoid experiencing strife? Suppose I could tell you the answer to that. Would you be interested? If I could show you in the scripture how you could avoid strife, would you do it? Well, you're probably thinking, I'd like to see what you have to say first. All right. Turn to Genesis chapter 13, and I'll tell you the story of how to avoid strife and how to be blessed on top of that. Verse 1, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also went with Abram and had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's flock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Now there's more to the story, which we will get to in a minute. 
But I want to pause here and let's look at these verses before we read and examine the rest of the story. The story very neatly falls into three parts. And the first part is these first seven verses. And in these verses, we're introduced to the strife. Verse 7 says it, and there was strife. That's the point of the first seven verses. But let me explain some of the things that go on before we got to that, that help us understand what's going on. First of all, we're told that Abraham went from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, to the south. And verse 2 says, he was very rich. He had livestock, silver, and gold. And he went to Bethel. And verse 4 says, that was an altar there. He had built an altar there before he went, and he built an altar there when he came back from Egypt. Now these verses tell us about Abram. And the observations are very simple. In the first place, it says, Lot was with him. Now, if you will recall, God told Abram to leave Ur and leave his family. And Lot went with him to Haran. And then Lot went with him to the promised land. So the fact that Lot is with him is an indication that he wasn't totally obeying the Lord at this point. And it's an indication that Lot went with him to Egypt. So Lot's tagging along. The other thing that is obvious is that Abraham was rich. Now, it would be customary to say that he was rich in livestock, but verse 2 says he was rich in silver and gold. That's different from nomad for a herdsman to have silver and gold, and yet he did. Then, so we can say he was rich, we can also say that though he hadn't completely obeyed the Lord, he was spiritual. And that's indicated by the fact that he went back to Bethel and he built an altar there. That altar is his an indication of his relationship with the Lord. So the first four verses are telling us that Abraham was rich and spiritual. Uh, he went back to Bethel, where he had worshipped the Lord and called on the Lord, which verse 4 says, there Abram called on the name of the Lord, and that probably includes worship and witness. So it indicates his relationship with the Lord. I don't know how many preachers have used this passage to talk about wandering away from the Lord and coming back to the Lord. You ever heard a sermon on back to Bethel? Uh, you departed from the Lord and you need to get back to Bethel. That's where you left him, so you need to get back there and preach to backsliders. That's a good Baptist sermon. Uh, many a preacher has preached on this passage and talked about getting back to Bethel. It's almost a slogan signifying the need of a wandering saint to come back to the Lord. You ever wandered from the Lord? Were you ever at Bethel and wandered down to Egypt 
need to come back to Bethel? Well, that's what Abram did. Donald Gray Barnhouse compared the believer wandering away from the Lord with the prodigal son, who, when he found himself eating pig's food, came to his senses. Barnhouse said, Pine husks are often the hors d'oeuvres before the fatted calf. The only way to get back to the will of God is to go back to the very cause of the departure, confess it, forsake it, and return to the place of fellowship. What got my attention was the pig's swine were the hors d'oeuvres for the main course of the fatted calf. So, Abraham has not been totally obedient. He's still paying the price for that. Lot's tagging along. But he's a spiritual man. He builds an altar back at Bethel. Verse 5 introduces Lot. Lot went with Abram. He had flocks and herds and tents. Now, if you're reading the passage and paying attention, you can't help but notice that uh, we were told in verse 2, Abraham was rich and had livestock and silver and gold. But when you get to Lot, it says he had flocks and herds and tents. Now that indicates he too was rich, only he wasn't as rich as Abram. But he had flocks, he had herds, and he was rich. The other thing that's missing is there's no altar. He doesn't go back to Bethel and build an altar. He's left the Lord out of his life, so to speak. So I think a lot of people are like Lot today. They leave the Lord out of their business, their family, their occupation. And consequently, they leave the Lord out spiritually. And that is Lot. So that Abraham had possessions, but his possessions didn't have him. Lot had possessions, and his possessions had him. Abram was rich and spiritual. Lot was rich and carnal. And that sets up verse 7. Well, verse 6 says, the land wasn't big enough for both of them. I think I've met people and thought, you know, this organization isn't big enough for the both of you. <laughs> Your egos are so big, it isn't big enough for the both of you. In this case, it's simply saying there wasn't enough pasture to feed the flocks and herds of both men. They both had such large herds that the land wasn't able to feed both of those gigantic herds. So, verse 7 says, there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen uh, of Lot's livestock. And by the way, the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. So, what we have now is riches that causes strife. They're really arguing, not over the open or closed window, but over money. In this case, riches. Uh, as 
measured by herbs and flocks, and uh, that's where the strife comes from. The Hebrew word that's translated strife indicates that this was used of a legal dispute, so that it's like one presents his claim and the other presents his claim, and they go back and forth. Now, let me ask you a question. Who should have won this argument? Let me ask you another question. Who owned the land? God gave it to Abram. That should have settled this, right? So he should have just said, well, I'm the owner, and uh, I, I should make the choice. But he didn't. Uh, I think that uh, this kind of strife goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. And it's as old as Cain and Abel, and it's as recent as today's newspaper. You cannot pick up a newspaper without reading about some kind of a conflict or strife or violence anymore. It is all over the place. You can't listen to the news without there being some kind of story about strife. So the question is, what do you do? How do you solve this problem? And I would like to suggest that the next part of this passage, the second movement in the passage, tells us how they resolve this. It starts in verse 8 and goes through verse 13. So Abram said to Lot, verse 8, Please, let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, uh, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, that is, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, if the one word that summarizes the first seven verses is strife, that's the point at least, the word that summarizes verses 8 through 13 is the word separation. The way they solved the strife problem is they simply separated from each other. Abraham said to Lot, tell you what, you choose. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. I'm going to give you the first choice. But we're going to separate these flocks so that we don't have 
a problem anymore. Wow. Understand how significant that is? Wow. Talk about humility and giving up your right. I mean, Lot shouldn't even been with him in the first place. Should have been all his. And he's willing to give it all up to prevent the strife. Interesting. So, what does Lot do? Well, there are a series of verbs that describe what he did. First of all, verse 10 says, he saw. Uh, he lifted up his eyes and saw. He surveyed the land and he said, well, this is an easy decision. That's the best for a herd, for my flock. Uh, so I saw it. Somebody has suggested that what you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. Now remember, in these early verses, we decided that Lot was rich, but he wasn't a spiritual man. He was saved. Peter says Sodom vexed his righteous soul. He was a believer, but he was carnal. He wasn't a spiritually minded man. That's who he was. That determined what he saw. He saw what was best for him. And so what did he do? Well, he saw, and then verse 11 says, and he chose. 10 says he saw, 11 says he chose. But look at the next phrase, for himself. He made a very selfish decision. Then verse 12 says, he dwelt. That is, he saw, he chose, and he dwelt. That summarizes what he did. What is interesting is um, that he dwelt in the land of Canaan, in the cities of the plains, and he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Uh, one verse in this passage says, he went to the east. Adam went to the east after he fell. Cain went east after he disobeyed the Lord. After Babel happened, they went east. And now Lot goes east. It says that. Uh, later in the passage in verse um, 14, I believe. Oh, no, that's when the Lord told Abraham uh, to look in every kind of direction. We'll get to that in a minute. At any rate, Lot uh, chose what was best for him. He chose what was most desirable. He chose what the eye saw, and he chose what was selfish. So if nothing else, we should learn uh, don't trust what your eye sees. Uh, trust what you know is what the Lord wants. Don't operate on carnal principles, but operate on spiritual principles. Lot was a very carnal man. Someone has said, he did not ask, is this a good place to raise children? He asked, is this a good place to raise cattle? Remember, 
he pitched his tent toward Sodom because that was the best field. So he wasn't thinking about his children, which later we find out caused a great deal of problems being in Sodom. But he chose what was best for his cattle. That's his carnality. Somebody has suggested the first question that comes to the soul is heaven or hell? The second is heaven or earth? Abram chose heaven. Lot chose earth. Lot answered the first question when he left Mesopotamia, chose heaven rather than hell. He answered the second question when he chose Sodom, to dwell near Sodom. This carnal man chose what was best for himself. All right. Told you how to solve strife. You said you wanted to know, right? Well, here's how you do it. You give up all your rights. That's how you do it. Right? Is that a biblical idea? Or is this just a rare story that got tucked in here somehow to show us how spiritual Abraham was? Do we need to live by this? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul chides the church at Corinth because they, they had some disputes going on in the, in the church. And to solve it, they went to court. And Paul gets very upset at them and says, you know, you got people in the church that could solve this. Just go pick out some spiritually minded people in the church. Let them decide what happens here. And then he says this. Why didn't you suffer wrong? Rather than go to court, why didn't you just suffer wrong? Why didn't you just uh, lose? That's what this is about. That's the way you solve strife. Somebody gives in. Somebody gives up. And you say, you take right, I'll take left. You take left, I'll take right. That's the way you solve it. You separate. Now, they still lived in peace, and I'm not, I think that there are situations where, as much as possible, you ought to establish some peace, but you ought to be willing to give up even your right. Abraham had the right. The Greek word translated gentle means giving up your rights. That's the way you solve strife. If everybody did that, would we have strife? Not on your ever-loving life. What would there be to fight about? If everybody's willing to give up their point, what is there to fight about? Would that solve the problem? Absolutely. Matter of fact, there are times when there's strife and the separation is so great, they literally, physically separate from one another. You know of a case like that in the Bible? How about Paul and Barnabas? 
On the first missionary journey, they took Barnabas with them down to Cyprus, and they landed up in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, which was Galatia. And um, John Mark went home. He left them. Well, they could get up to the, where established the churches at uh, Galatia. They just landed, and he left. And they landed on the mainland, and he just went home, got homesick or something. And so then they get back, and decide they're going to go on their second missionary journey. And guess what the issue is? Do we take Mark? And Barnabas, who had the gift of mercy and exhortation, said, oh, sure. And Paul said, well, he deserted us one time. We're not trusting him the second time. And the text says, in Acts chapter 13, the contention was very great. And the, the implication of the Greek words is they, they raised their voices at each other. And over John Mark, they split up. You never hear about Barnabas again, ever, in the New Testament. You do hear about John Mark. Paul gets to the end of his life and talks about John Mark. So Barnabas was right in following John Mark taking John Mark, but um, they literally had to split up. I don't think that was the ideal. I don't think they needed to do that, but that's the way they solved the strife. They separated. So the solution to strife is separation. Isn't that great? <laughs> you don't look happy. <laughs> is that a problem? Yeah, wow, just think of all the things I'm going to lose if I do that. Are you kidding me? Not very appealing solution, is it? Right? So how do you live with that? Should you do that? Should you give up? Well, let me tell you, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Let's pick it up in verse 14. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. And all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land, through the length of it and the width of it, for I give it to you. Then they removed his tent and went and dwelled in the trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. All right. Very simply. The next thing that happens is the Lord settles this thing for Abraham once and for all. What he says is this, Abram, I'm going to give you all that you can see. You gave up your right, now I'm going to bless you beyond your imagination. I'm going to give you everything you see to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. He says, go walk on it. Now that that's an idea of 
came from the ancient Middle East where they walked on the property to take possession of it. Go take it. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. And furthermore, the second thing he says is, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. You're going to get it, and all your descendants are going to get it. And the third thing he says is, and uh, your descendants are going to be like the, the sand in the ground, the dust in the ground, the dirt. If you can count all the granules of sand, you know how your children and your descendants are going to be. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole. But the idea is there's going to be more than you can count. Uh, that's the point. He didn't mean that you literally gather all the granules of sand and count them. But <coughs> Excuse me. It's going to be like that in that it's going to be beyond you counting. So that is the point. Then Abram, we're told, goes to Hebron. Hebron was strategically located between Jerusalem and Beersheba, about halfway between. It's the highest point in all of the Holy Land. It's 3,050 feet above sea level. It becomes Abram's headquarters. It becomes his center of operation. Uh, he comes again and again back to Hebron. Matter of fact, there is a cave there, Cave of Machpelah. It is still there. And Abram gets buried in that cave. And so do others. As we go through the book of Genesis, I will point out who gets buried in Hebron. Hebron becomes the capital, so to speak, of the patriarchs. Later, Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. But at this point, Abram goes to Hebron, and that becomes his center of operation. So, uh, it isn't all bad to give it all up. When the Lord steps in and says, I'm going to give you more than you gave up. So here becomes the question. Would you give it up to get what the Lord wants to give you? I could be real crass and say, would you give it up to get more? Sounds a little selfish, but that's what's going on in this passage. So when because of their large herds, Abram and Lot had to separate, and Abram trusted the Lord and unselfishly gave Lot his choice. God enlarged and enriched his blessing to Abram. That is the point of this passage. Now I want to close by making a couple of observations. There are two issues in this passage. It would be tempting for us to read the passage and simply see strife, separation, and resolution. And that's what's here. That's one issue, and it's here. But there's another issue. The primary point has to do with the land, which in this chapter is mentioned seven times. 
God promised Abram the land. And Abram is willing to trust the Lord to give it to him. That's very important. Now just before this, in chapter 12, we followed Abram as he went to Egypt. And in Egypt, he tried to figure it out how he could do it with his own wisdom and ingenuity. Remember that? How's that working for you? Well, it didn't work out too well. So, maybe now Abram's learned, I'm just going to trust the Lord. Whatever he gives me is just fine with me. So when Abram trusted the Lord and unselfishly gave up his rights, God enlarged his promise of the land. You cannot outgive the Lord. So the contrast is between Lot and Abram. Lot walked by sight and chose what was selfish. Abraham walked by faith and chose what was spiritual. Walking by faith kept him close to the Lord and a recipient of even greater blessing. Abram avoided the strife with Lot and inherited this, inherited this great, great blessing. So, here's the bottom line for us. Don't make winning the quarrel your goal. Focus on doing what is loving, and God will bless you abundantly above everything that you can see or imagine. Think that's true? Worth living like that? It's worth just the peace. Abraham had been to the altar at Bethel. Maybe when he made that sacrifice, he learned to sacrifice. Interesting thought. Spurgeon said, It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. If you're going to play the second fiddle, you're going to have to have grace. But that's what Abram did, and God blessed him for it. One commentator summed up the situation when he said, Abram therefore had the freedom to act generously, righteously, and mercifully in resolving the dispute. I love it. He had the freedom to be gracious. He goes on to say, those who believe the promise of God's provision may be generous with their possessions, but those who are greedy, anxious, covetous, have not understood the nature of God's covenant. End of quote. Wow. I have the freedom to be generous, give up my rights, because I can live by grace, and God will be gracious to me. What a wonderful lesson 
we can learn. As you know, I used to be the pastor of the Church of the Open Door, and I had a staff. Ten people were on the staff, and an exploding congregation. I had a, an assistant pastor who was a gifted administrator, and he ran the operation that freed me up to study. And concentrate on teaching. It was a great combination. But after a decade of working together, he resigned, and one of the results was an, an unusually large load of work that fell on me. Matter of fact, at, the, at that moment, I chose not to replace him, and uh, that's not one of the brightest decisions I ever made, but that's what I did at that moment. And for a stretch of several months, I worked without a day off. At one point in early December of that year, an elder saw me one day when I was particularly tired. And he concluded that it was time for me to get out of town for a few days. At first, I resisted him. I was of the opinion that I shouldn't go, particularly in December just before Christmas. About that time, I had an opportunity to take a quick trip to Dallas for a meeting that I thought would be very profitable. As I recall, that was the trip where another fellow and I were going to go to help another pastor that was in trouble. I thought that would give me a break and give me a worthy project to do besides. I suggested that maybe after all, I should take a few days off. Of course, for a pastor, what is critical is not to take a day off, but to take a Sunday off. You can't take a day off and, it, and have Sunday hanging over you. That comes Sunday, you've got to speak. So if I'm going to take time off, I need to take a Sunday off. Actually, I had the right to do that because my agreement when I went to that church is they would allow me to be gone six Sundays a year, and that year I'd only taken two. I have a very hard time taking vacations. Once I get on them, I enjoy them, but I'm not known for taking a lot of vacations, and I'd only been gone two weeks out of the whole year. So I could have simply said to the board, uh, hey, I need a one of you said I need to get out of town, so I'm going to use one of my Sundays and get out of town. Uh, that uh, didn't meet uh, well with some of the elders. As a matter of fact, um, there was a committee meeting where several of the elders were present, and this issue came up, and one elder was very strong that I should not be gone on a Sunday that month in December, before Christmas. Frankly, I felt that if I weren't gone on a Sunday, I might as well not go at all. But though I had the right to go, I could have just exercised the right, and that would have been the end of the discussion. I didn't press the issue. I simply decided to take a day or two and not a Sunday. I stayed every Sunday that month. 
within 30 days, I was given an all-expense-free trip to Israel. In this case, there would not have been a lot of strife between me and the elders, no matter what I did. Not like there was between Abram and Lot. However, the principle is the same. The way to avoid strife is simply to trust the Lord for him to bless you in his good time. Father, we are so fickle. We are so slow to get the message, to just trust you. So teach us, Father, to trust you and be gracious and generous to others so that you can bless us the more. In Jesus' name, amen.